Bible is one story, right? The story is one Bible. The Bible is one story. Um, it started when God, what, created the world? Okay, that's the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Soon after God created everything, a conflict was introduced. That conflict was people sinning. Okay, sin was introduced. And because people sinned, uh, now people die. Uh, God says, that's not good. Um, and he gives people the opportunity to rule the world uh, in this state. When people were ruling the world, it was Genesis chapter 6. Uh, we saw that the intent of their hearts was only wicked all the time. Um, there was violence uh, upon the whole earth. Um, it almost was not salvageable, right? Um, but God, he chooses a family. Uh, he saves them through a flood, baptizes the earth, and says, okay, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to let things get to that point again. Like, I love my world. I love my creation, and I'm not going to see it destroyed, right? So in Genesis chapter 8, God makes a promise. This is at the end of Genesis chapter 8. Never again will I curse the ground on account of human sin. Never again will I destroy all life like I have done, even though people are wicked, even though the intent of the human heart is only wicked all the time. And then we saw Babel, and God proved himself, right, in Babel. He said, I won't let the earth get to that point again. People in Babel tried to be like the people in Genesis 6, and God intervened. He he confused their languages. He scattered them in order to save them from earning destruction. Uh, and then we saw Abraham. God chose Abraham. Now he's bringing humanity along with him. He's not steamrolling humanity. He's not doing this whole thing without humanity because he cares for humanity. Uh, he is patient with us. We saw in Second Peter, patient with us, uh, not wanting, not desiring any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so God is going through this process, not doing everything at once, uh, not just uh, taking humanity out, uh, even though people are wicked, because he is patient toward us. He's going through this, this process. Um, he doesn't desire the people perish. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. And just like he chose Abraham and made Abraham a promise, he also chooses Israel. And we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that he did not choose Israel because Israel was a large nation or a powerful nation. He chose Israel simply because he made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. And he made a promise to Noah that he would never again destroy the earth or curse the ground because of Humanity, And so he, he chooses Israel, now a nation, his representative nation uh, upon the earth, uh, through which to share his justice and his peace with the entire world. Remember, through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so through Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They will learn the peace and the justice and the mercy of God. And because God is doing this, striving with humanity, not against humanity, right, but striving with humanity because God is doing this, the earth will never get to the point of destruction or the cursing of the ground again, according to God's promise in Genesis chapter 
8. Now, in the story, Israel, of course, is a nation, uh, the descendants of Jacob, the family of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Jacob who became Israel, his sons and daughters, and they go into Egypt. God gives them um, peace in Egypt for a time. He gives them prosperity in Egypt for a time. But over time, a Pharaoh came to power who did not know Jacob, and he enslaved Israel. Um, Why do you think God would work things together such that this is part of the story? Uh, Why this time in Egypt? Why would God choose a nation only to put them in captivity, only to put them in slavery in Egypt? Why wouldn't he prevent something like that from happening? This is the next part of the story. So he's chosen a nation, right? A nation to be his representative. Why would he send his nation, his representative nation on the earth, anywhere in order to interact with any group of of people? And I think the answer really is, we're going to see it in the text today, that God is not only saving Israel. God is not only working for Israel. He's also working among the nations to accomplish the promise that he made in Genesis chapter 8. Look at this. This is Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. So this is after Moses killed the Egyptian, right? Most of you know the story, right? This is after uh, Moses killed the Egyptian. This is after he fled to Midian. This is after he lived in Midian for like 100 years. Uh, By 100, I mean like 40 years, okay? So he lived in Midian for like 40 years. He saw the burning bush. He's like 80 years old now. And he saw this, this burning bush, and God said, I'm sending you to Egypt to free my people, this is after he already went to Egypt and talked to Pharaoh one time. And Pharaoh said, because you came here, I'm going to increase labor. Their slavery is going to be much worse because you came, because you're so arrogant that you opposed the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And now God is talking to Moses again. The Lord said to Moses, see, I make you as God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, your mouthpiece. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I, this is God speaking, right? But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. This is the the plagues of Exodus, right? I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst, so Moses and Aaron did it. As the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So we saw what God did with Canaan, right? Uh, With the Canaanites, God waited until their iniquities were complete and he's going to send Israel back to the land so they can take the land and he tells them, "Take take out the Canaanites. Like they are purely evil. There is no hope for them. There's no salvaging that nation. 
The same was true for Sodom and Gomorrah when Abraham looked at the city. Uh, He said, God, would you really destroy the righteous along with the wicked? Uh, If there were 50 righteous people in there, would you destroy the city? And God said, no, if there are 50 righteous people in there, I would not destroy the city. And Moses goes, what about 40? What about what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? What if, what if there were only 10 righteous people in the city? Would you destroy the city? And God said, no, I would not destroy the city if there were only 10 righteous people. So even in Sodom and Gomorrah, like there was no hope. But here we see God doing something very different with Egypt, right? God has decided never again to destroy the earth. We've seen when he destroys nations, it is because they are evil and they are going to bring violence to his earth and ultimately lead to the destruction uh, of humanity and of the world through their actions. So he opposes them to their faces, but he doesn't do that with, with Egypt. Instead, what does he do with Egypt? Why go through all this instead of just destroying Egypt and setting Israel free? So Israel, they're going to survive, right? Uh, Egypt's also going to survive. Um, if God destroys peoples where there are no righteous people, where there is no hope, that means for Egypt there must be what? There must be some kind of hope. And look, God's motivation is not only to free the Israelites, but look at verse 5 here. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, the Egyptians worship all kinds of false gods, right? But God is going to make sure those in Egypt, Egyptians, know that he is the Lord. For some reason, uh, he is interacting with, with Egypt such that Egypt at least will see him and recognize him, will know that he is Lord, and, and somehow will be changed for the better because of this. I got really curious, so I started looking at uh, historical records and trying to find like uh, literature from uh, Egypt's Middle Kingdom uh, when the Exodus most likely happened, right? And I found one scribe who wrote about how things changed in Egypt following the Exodus. I was reading the scribe's description, and he said, the rich and the powerful, the elite, the politicians, I'm going to use American language so we uh, just understand a little better, the, the politicians, and the, the rich, like, religious leaders, they were laid to ruin. All their slaves were set free, right? Uh, they were laid to ruin. They were having to live like poor people. Um, but those in society who were not doing well, who, who were poor and who were oppressed, and he's saying this like it's a bad thing. Now, we hear this, and we're going to think, hey, that sounds great, right? But he's saying this like it's a bad thing because he was one of the, the well-to-do people, Right? He said all, those, all the poor people, all the people who don't matter much, now they're, now they're living well. They're living like wealthy people in the land. So we see this time in Egypt um, as a time of upheaval. Uh, we call it one of Egypt's dark ages, but that's just because of the political upheaval and the fact that the, the social classes were so mixed up after the Exodus, following the Exodus, that now... Poor people, those who were oppressed in Egypt, Egyptian citizens were no longer being oppressed. And so in Egypt, there were not only Israelite slaves, but actual Egyptians who were part of classes who were seen as less than human by the elite. And when the Exodus happens and there's this political upheaval, 
like there's some kind of justice done in the land of, of Egypt that we see testified about by someone who is living during that time. And we can actually read the story from his own hand today. That sounds a lot like God is letting Israel know who he is and things, uh, Egypt, God is letting Egypt know who he is and things in Egypt are actually changing according to the historical record right where the Exodus fits in to the historical timeline. Now, much later on the timeline, there's a prophet by the name of Isaiah. Did you know that Isaiah prophesied concerning Egypt? That Egypt is still around during the time of Isaiah? Is Egypt still around today? Yes, okay, yes, Egypt is still around today. But the prophet Isaiah said something about Egypt much later than Moses, much later than the Exodus. Can you guess what the prophet Isaiah wrote about Egypt? Can we read it? Can we read it together? Would that be all right? So here's what Isaiah writes, chapter 19, verses 18 through 25. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan. Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan. And swearing allegiance to who? The Lord. So Isaiah is talking about a future time when people in Egypt are actually going to be swearing allegiance to the God who just sent all the plagues on the land. There's hope for Egypt. In Moses' day, God sees Egypt and he doesn't just see what Egypt is, but he sees what he will make Egypt, right? And God will do such a work in Egypt that people in Egypt will pledge allegiance to the Lord of hosts, to God. And one of these cities that pledges allegiance to God will be called the city of destruction. So the city of destruction, which once was a place of violence where evil and wickedness were, God is moving there. And instead of being called probably by this name, uh, they're going to be called by the name of, 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 of God. They're going to change. They're going to be converted, transformed. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a champion. And we believe that to be Jesus Christ, like he came for Egypt too. And he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt again. He will make himself known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria. There will be peace in the world, according to what God is working out as a result of this Savior and champion coming, that is Jesus. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Syria, and the Egyptians will worship with, the Assyrians. And that day, Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, 
saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. Egypt, my people. This is God speaking. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. And so when we look at this story, this single story, every step that God takes, remember, is very purposeful. It's very intentional. From the beginning to when this conflict begins, sin is introduced and people now will die uh, because of human sin. And God, wanting to be patient with us and bring us along, chooses Israel. But He's not only working with Israel, He's also working with Egypt. Even starting now, the purpose of the plagues was so that Egypt would know that He is God. And eventually the end result of that is Egypt will worship God. And the worship of God eventually, as a result of the work He is doing throughout time, it will be worldwide. The peoples of the earth will worship Him. And that's what He is working toward. Remember, when we worship ourselves, when we worship idols, um, we tend toward selfishness. Uh, We do things in order to to gain uh, what we want or in order to please ourselves. And that ultimately is bad for everyone else, right? If everybody is only seeking what each one wants, um, then eventually the world does delve into wickedness and violence. But God intervenes. And He intervenes in order to save people. He's not interested in mere destruction. He is not the bad guy in the story. He really is the good guy in the story. He really is the hero of this story. Uh, Defeating death, striving with humanity, uh, bringing about to a greater degree peace on earth, even in the Old Testament when it comes to Egypt at this point. That's why he doesn't just destroy Egypt, why he doesn't just wipe them out, but he brings the plagues so that they will know him. And the end result of even the plagues in Exodus, is that Egypt, Egypt will worship God, according to the prophet Isaiah. And he's doing the same with us. And I find great comfort in this. Um, We hear all of the time that if a nation is in sin, or if a nation rebels against God, or if a people rebel against God, that God's judgment will be swift, and that he will bring destruction to nations. And while he will do that on occasion like we saw with Canaan and like we saw with Sodom and Gomorrah, his normal path of action, right, is to intervene. His normal path of action is to bring salvation and redemption to strive with humanity because he is patient toward people, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And I I find that very comforting because it means on an individual level when I mess up and when I am in sin and when I deny God with my actions or when I'm selfish, it means that God intervenes, strives with me rather than against me. And that is why I worship Him. He is a good, good Father.